Hello everyone, I'm Juana Yordekescu and you're listening to the We Include podcast. Here, we seek to bring you the most relevant and off-the-shelf diversity and inclusion initiatives. Today we're having a very special episode where we speak to Ricardo Baez-Ayet, Director of Research at the Institute of Experiential AI at Northeastern University in California and founder of Optia, a public observatory for algorithm transparency and inclusion in Chile. He was VP of Research at Yahoo Labs, overseeing labs in Spain, the UK, Hungary, and Israel, is a patent owner, author, and speaker around ethical AI and bias. Not really sure how I managed to land this interview, but I could not be more honored to share this episode with you all. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Ricardo. Welcome to the We Include podcast. Hello, Anna. Nice to be invited. I am very much appreciative for you uh, waking up for this. Um, I think we have like nine hours difference, um, uh, but uh, our audience will be listening to this, I hope, in their comfort of their own uh, time. And I think for us today, uh, we have so much to talk about. To be honest, for those listening, this is a bit of a special episode. We're not necessarily looking at one initiative. We're looking a bit more at concepts that help all the other initiatives that we're going to run through. Um, but in the same time, we're also also going to uh, speak about some uh, projects that Ricardo is driving that I find fascinating, first of all, for uh, the research world in everything bias, inclusion, algorithms, um, and this uh, fourth revolution that we're, we're going through, I guess. And um, also some things that we can use for everything talent acquisition, everything workforce planning, hiring, decision-making into what types of partnerships do we want to build. Having in mind that a lot of us are currently buying tools who are promising non-biased decision-making when it comes to hiring and, and candidate attraction. So I know all these questions are on your mind. They're definitely on mine. And hopefully Ricardo today will offer us a bit more insight into that. Uh, Ricardo, I'm going to ask you for a quick intro. I think uh, you, you can speak best to the plethora of experience you've gathered. Yeah, so I'm the director of research of the Institute for Experiential AI. This is a new institute that started last year at the Northeastern University. Uh, the main uh, location is Boston, but uh, the university has uh, more than 12 campuses in three countries. And I live in, in California, so I work mainly remote. But I also participate in many uh, committees that are worried about the, the responsible use of AI. And that includes the ACM, US Technology Policy Committee. I'm also in the IEEE Ethics Committee. I'm helping uh, the Inter-American Development Bank in Latin America and the, in the Caribbean. Also involved with an NGO that we created in, in Chile, Optia. I think we will talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm an expert member of the Global Partnership of AI, this movement that started France and Canada on, on developed countries. And also, I belong to the Spain Council of AI, that is the current council for the current Spanish government. So much to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, no time. Um, <laughs> no time, no time, no time. Uh, but I do have a bit of a personal question, right? I think I've seen one of your uh, other recordings with some other uh, partners in, in podcasting um, around your um, qualities of an immigrant, right? Like you, you've come originally from Chile. Um, you've lived in many different places around the world. Uh, you're probably going to change a few more times. And uh, I'm, I'm actually curious, going back to your roots, what do you think triggered 
if there is a certain moment, but I guess it's a, it's a string of moments. Uh, but what do you think triggered in your uh, early years leading you here, right? Like going into this direction, technology uh, and specifically uh, on algorithms and inclusion? I, I may not know the answer. Uh, yeah. it's, 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 not, it's not trivial to, to, to know all the motivation that, that uh, guide your behavior through time. But I think I would say one is that I wanted to know the world. Uh, geography is mm-hmm. my passion. So, mm-hmm. so I, I call it applied geography. That's traveling. I have been in 85 countries and, and I want to be, even know uh, be more because I think that's uh, only less than half the, theirs. But, but at the same time, I think something that had helped me is, was, is to, to make no plans. So basically, mm-hmm. I never set a, a path to, to do. And I've always been open to, to new opportunities, even if they were completely outside my 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 possible uh, thinking. And I think that's uh, that's open opens you a completely different world. And that's why I'm here. Otherwise, if I, I, I had planned, maybe I will be I don't know a successful engineer in Chile, but I will never travel that much. I will never do, do, do research. I will have never lived in many countries and so on. Um, Ricardo, going to Optia, I think this is very interesting. Uh, this is a public observatory for algorithms, transparency, and inclusion. Yes. Tell us more. What does it mean, and why do we need it? So, 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 so the acronym uh, ends with uh, uh, algorithmic inclusion. That is uh, is uh, basically the same as AI in Spanish. So, IA. And, and yes. that's like a, a word game because we want to basically uh, observe what AI is doing in the country, especially in, in, in the public world. So what the government is is uh, using AI for. But we use uh, rhythmic inclusion because algorithms are more than AI. So even you can have a silly algorithm that can impact on people. And in the past, we had, before AI, we had many problems with algorithms, but not as many as, as today. Mm-hmm. Because something that people forget is that when you have a technology that grows, let's say, very fast, let's say exponentially, although I think that's an exaggeration, but many people talk about this exponential growth. Anything that grows exponential has two problems. First, it will explode sometimes because nothing can sustain that growth. It's like a balloon <laughs> will, will explode. And the second is that the, the number of problems also will go the same way. And this is what we have seen. And now we have thousands of problems recorded that we know, but maybe there are 10 times that that we don't know. And that's why we, we, we thought that we need to have an observatory uh, to, to basically more like a watchdog in Chile that is just starting with this, not as... In Europe already, you have things like Algorithm Watch and very similar. So we wanted to copy that model uh, and, and try to adapt it culturally to Latin America. And I've seen some um, the recent reports from this watchdog, as you call them, from the Netherlands. And I think uh, we see this in a couple of different countries. Whenever we, we start splicing <laughs> the problems in, uh, yeah. I think the result was out of six um, specific entities that were monitored, Uh, four or even more were actually having serious issues, right? And this impacts 
people's livelihood ultimately and, and public decision or public perception as well. Uh, yeah, and, and in the Netherlands yeah. it's very interesting because it's, it's, it's one, of, one part of the government that is doing that. Mm -hmm. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a basically justice is doing that, that work. So justice basically is watching uh, the executive. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so in every country there are many different solutions. The best will be that you have this kind of a public concern and the mm -hmm. same one part of the government, like Cong uh, say the Congress or, or the, even the executive, or in this case, like in other words, justice uh, takes care of the problem. But in some other countries you need to have the civil society doing it. For sure. And I think in general, we, at least in, in the media, there is a certain um, uh, split between uh, topics that have to do with public, like public institutions, public initiatives, public concerns, and private, private corporations, private institutions, private concerns. But I, I feel working in recruitment and talent acquisition in general, there's no private without public and a bit vice versa. Um, so I think whatever you are observing at governmental levels, it trickles down uh, specifically in, in accessibility to opportunity in general, right? But also other stuff, health, insurance, uh, livelihood, zoning, all this, let's say, class-related and discrimination and bias applied uh, uh, randomly in general. But if you think about the implications that you've already observed through this research and through this observatory, um, what would be areas where us as professionals in talent acquisition, hiring, labor law, should pay a bit more attention to and should be aware of? Yeah, so th this is a great question because it's something that really worries me, especially in hiring. So in hiring, uh, you see some, a bit of pseudoscience mm -hmm. that, that, that seems to, to work, uh, but maybe you are rediscovering stereotypes. For mm -hmm. example, you see things like um, trying to detect emotions from faces and videos, so from trying to detect uh, even personality traits, and that's clearly completely, completely pseudoscience science that will be more like a physiognomy, something that the Greek believes on, that later, uh, even even in the 19th century, many philosophers believed that, that if you had a long nose, that meant something about the personality and so on. So we know that this is not true, but basically people is rediscovering this and, and, and finding spurious correlations where really it's not about the face, it's about the, if you use a beard or not, if, if, if you have long hair, if you use the earrings, or the type of clothing, or the length of your hair. So you already discover stereotypes and think that this works, like, oh, 70% of the time it works. Yeah, but but the other 70% doesn't work. So that's pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you will improve it in, in time. It's basically your rediscovering stereotypes that will fail with many people. And 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 one part of that we have a problem in, in computer science is that I don't care when you succeed. What I really care yeah. is what is the impact of your mistakes. So so mm. even if you fail only 1% of the time, but in that 1% of the time, for example, you kill some person like a self-driving driving car, yes. well, we have to uh, evaluate what are the risks, uh, what are the benefits okay. and what are the, uh, uh, the possible harms. And we are not doing that very well uh, yet. So, so, for example, in hiring also, well, there, there's some people like Lisa Feldman Barrett that shows that even humans cannot detect emotions well. Yeah. So if, if humans cannot detect <laughs> emotions well, yeah, so if, if it depends on the culture, depends on the 
Some people laugh when they're nervous and so on. There are many variants. So, so this works, but doesn't work all the time. So that's the problem with AI. It works until it doesn't work. And we, you cannot predict that. And there's mm-hmm. other things like, uh, so for example, when, when some companies are using other uh, games or tests for, yes. uh, for checking skills. Assessments, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- there's no science that sells, uh, says that, that because you're good at this game, you are better on this skill or not. I mean, it's... Of course, yes. It, it, Will it, you it be works. actually good at Maybe the job? Maybe it works part of the time again, but it doesn't work all the time. So, so it will work. But the problem is not when it works. The problem is that maybe you are unfair to a person when it didn't work. And then that person didn't got the job, although that person was the more qualified to that. Mm-hmm. So this is the danger of using AI like a, like a tool that, that also that uniformizes people because every person is a world. So when mm-hmm. you use AI, you are basically applying the same kind of prediction to the, all the people. When for this person, maybe if you want to talk to me, maybe we, we can we can dip down in geography and I will excel. But in other topics, I may not. Correct. I think whenever I, I had any type of sessions or conference um, talks, and I try to bring up the, the tools that we use sometimes or things that seem to create a less biased world in a way, right? Or give at least the impression that we're doing the right things. There's always this counter argument, but humans are not necessarily better than than the than the algorithm, right? And in a way, to be honest, I'm sometimes stuck there because yes, it might it makes sense that statement, but the point is for us, where do we go from here? We cannot stop what's happening, right? Like we need to learn um, to maneuver this world that will have algorithms making decisions at scales for hiring, for for insurance, for health, for anything, right? So. And as you said, it, this has been happening for years already, if not more. So what are your some of your recommendations? What, what should I be asking these vendors when they come in and say, my product is amazing, it's going to be the fairest tool that you've ever used? <laughs> so, so, well, uh, I want to say that to, we say that to err is human. Yeah. So the question is, uh, do I uh, allow the same for machines, for algorithms? Mm-hmm. I prefer to say no. Some people say okay. yes. So, so the, this is the question. We, we, want to, we want to have uh, the help of uh, pseudo-humans or we want to mm-hmm. have something better than us. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think people want wants algorithms to be better than us, but they're learning from us. So it's kind of paradox. <laughs> so, so I would say that... that, that I, I think it's non, non-ethical today to use most of these tools. So there are no questions. Yeah, to, no question needs to be asked. Like, like there are some evaluations that need to be uh, individual, need to be mm-hmm. to, for a single person uh, and maybe by a human because mm-hmm. that's the way it works. Uh, and then if the people do a mistake, well, it was a human mistake, but was mm-hmm. not, for example, uh, a kind of a... A statistical mistake that that on average will happen again because was learned by the machine. These things are learned. It's repeatable. It's repeatable. That, that's the problem. So 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 it's like it becomes like a factory of mistakes, uh, and I right. think that's non-ethical for me. But many people prefer to say, okay, this is faster. Now you can always use it as a support tool. Yeah. But also we know that we have the cognitive bias that that we believe in magic, and then we believe more. Th- on these uh, uh, supporting facts, 
And many people basically say, yeah, I will, I will say what the machine says. Because we so like granting, we like granting authority, right? I think there is quite a lot of research. Yeah, on because how also, we just, also, because also, if we do mistake, yeah, in some sense we are not fully accountable because oh no, we, I said what this, this, this amazing AI system said, so we can wash our hands a little bit. I think the purpose of training humans on making fair decisions and cultural awareness and understanding of biases and cognitive biases and their implications in decision making is still the most important piece. This is what yes, I'm Yes, cognitive, cognitive biases are the most dangerous bias that we have as humans. Okay. You talk okay. about affirmative action. I think yeah. maybe I can give you a couple of examples of affirmative action I think I, I, I like. So, for example, myself, I, I have been first by, by chance, uh, but then by, uh, by design to have more PhD students that are women. Yeah. And then that's been very interesting because then women, I guess, uh, uh, bring more women. So basically, if you do a good job, uh, this this uh, gets a, a little viral. And then mm -hmm. this year, I will uh, graduate my 32 PhD students and uh, will be exactly 50% women. So I will achieve the goal of being exactly but gender That parity. is impressive, right? For academia and STEM? Um, well, um, yeah, for, for computer science, it's very, very unusual. So, yes. so typically, the number will be 10 to 20%. But you mentioned affirmative action. So you you did something for it. And uh, also, I want to mm -hmm. really, for those listening, I really want us to go a bit into what affirmative action is, because I think it's a, it's a, it's a terminology that not many people are aware of. And if they are aware, there's sometimes a lot yeah. of debate around it. So, yeah. Yeah, so, so affirmative action is one way to say positive bias because uh, mm -hmm. one, one bias that we have is that we've, 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 when we think about bias, we think of something about negative. But that's because of, of the news and, and what we see. But bias in principle is completely neutral. You can have positive bias or, or, or negative biases, but most of the time we're talking about the negative case and then we associate bias to that. So that's mm -hmm. why we, we use uh, affirmative action in the U.S. To, to basically say, okay, we will do like... Uh, um, in some sense, we will try to repair the past and yes. do something in the opposite direction of what has been happening before. And you, some people feel that, that, for example, in the case of gender affirmative action, that you are discriminated, discriminating men. Mm -hmm. That's true. In many cases, true. But then mm -hmm. you need to think that, that you had uh, hundreds of years that you were discriminating women. So in some cases, like a reparation act, is you are balancing past history. But it's not always the case. And let me give you an example that I find very interesting in my alma mater, my engineering alma mater in Chile. They decided to do the following affirmative action about, I would say about 10 years ago, that the 5% of the last uh, vacancies for engineering after a yes. national exam would be only for women. Yeah, reserved seats, yes. Reserved yeah, reserve seats. And, and this 5% meant that, that basically every year the number of women would, uh, would uh, increment in about 1% of the overall mm -hmm. student population of engineering. Mm -hmm. So this is the plan. Every year we do an affirmative action that only implies a 1% change and we will displace, let's say, because of the... Uh, because of the uh, un, uh, the way that, that less women apply to engineering, that means displacing not, not the same number of women, like 5%, maybe 
let's say 4% of men would be displaced. Yeah. So this is, and many people will say, okay, discrimination, right? Yeah. <laughs> However, after five years, they said, okay, let's see what happened after five years. And I don't know if the exact numbers, but I know what the, the, the spirit. So the first thing that they found that, that the difference between the women that 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 were selected compared to the the men that were displaced was just one question less in mathematics. So basically, mm -hmm. the difference in the score was just one question. And statistically, yeah. that's not significant because that's at the end of the score. So you are basically choosing people from the tail of the distribution. So it's, yes. They're almost equal. So it's almost like random. So, so this is the first thing that, that is interesting. There's no real statistical discrimination because the, the, score, the scores were almost the same. And, you know, no test is, just, is, is, is perfect. And it so doesn't matter just where you put that point, right? Like it matters if you decide to put that point one question lower, then you can... Yeah, yeah, but, but <laughs> it's also... It's natural, yes. No, no, but you are displacing the men in between the women. So, yes. so no, my point is that, that for example, that may, may be because of uh, you didn't sleep well last night or for many other things that have nothing to mm. do with skills. Mm -hmm. Okay? So this is the first thing. But the second thing, which is even more important for me, more amazing, is that the percentage of women grew more than doubled what they expected. And yeah. why? Because when women saw, this is my interpretation, I think there's no study about that, but when women saw that there was, was an affirmative action mm -hmm. and there were more women will be in engineering, more women applied, and then they entered on the top 95%. So they, they, mm -hmm. they entered because of their own uh, skills. And, and this is what was important. So the perception of the affirmative action was much more powerful than the action itself. Yeah. And this is something I, I, I think is important because we can have very tiny affirmative actions, but that changed the mindset of many people. And I am so happy you, were, you brought this example. And every time I had to work on any initiatives related to gender in technology where I activate quite a bit, the first step and the first advice and the first thing that actually worked was making sure we do have representation, making sure we do have role models, making sure we do have some people that you can relate and identify with as a woman. And this this actually brought another type of conversation most of the times. Am I a token, right? Am I somebody who is here as a token for the organization or for the group, for the community? And to your answer a bit, like what's negative, positive, I think it's how you perceive and in having these conversations very honestly with people who were the first, who were the pioneers in these spaces, they were like, I want to be, I want to be this person because I want to see more women. I want to see my daughters and my nieces having the consideration to enter this field without fear and without the um, concern that they would be alone, right? I think this is the, 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 the value of having somebody to, to look up with. I'm curious in your example, maybe we'll go back to that. Uh, also the example, depends on the culture, because yeah. if you go to India, I have been in, in, in giving talks where 70% are women. Or if you go to Iran, also the same, so majority are women. So so it depends on the country. We'll, uh, we'll go back a little bit to Optia because um, we understood how um, it applies to today's world um, and why is it useful. Um, I'm curious, what are some of the milestones so far? Yeah, so 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 the, we started as, as I said last year, and officially maybe one year ago, but we started to work on this idea a bit before. It was an idea of a friend, and we were nine nine founders at the beginning, 
we we had uh, four women, so we wanted to have also gender parity. Also, we wanted to have diversity, so we have lawyers, we have uh, uh, policymakers, we have, of course, computer science people. We have one person from communication world, so basically public relations. So we and, and he had the original idea. So we wanted to basically to be diverse in 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 everything, and also we have mm-hmm. people from very different origins. And this is very important because you need to, to, to be like inclusive. You really need to have the opinion of these things. Yes. Now, we have been more successful outside Chile right now than, than inside Chile. And this is interesting because we, in Spanish, we have a, a proverb that says there's uh, nobody's profit in your own land. <laughs> but, but for example, uh, with the Inter-American Development Bank, I got the request to... to basically to uh, design the framework and the timeline for the future uh, AI strategy for Costa Rica. And then mm-hmm. I assemble a sub-team from Optia, plus two people that, that from Costa Rica, because you need to have people, local people to understand the context. And I think after eight, nine months, we did uh, an amazing work on compiling everything that that has been done in the world about AI strategies, mm-hmm. how to localize that to Latin American countries, how to localize that to, to the context of Costa Rica, which is like a, a developing country. And we basically gave a, a more than 200 pages report on, on how to do it. So basically this is the framework. They have to fill the gaps but this is a, a unique framework that nobody has done before uh, to the Ministry of Science and Technology that just changed it because the government changed it. We had a presidential election in Costa Rica, so I hope they do it anyway. But, but basically, it was a very interesting exercise between uh, three lawyers and three computer scientists on, on how to, to do everything, to regulation, uh, observatories and so on. So what are the main problems? What are the principles, the ethical principles that you need to to sustain and so on? You mentioned something important, I feel. Uh, You need local people, right? You need to understand the language, you need to understand the the cultural uh, composition and historical issues probably as well. Um, How would you see this framework that you built for Costa Rica uh, applied or... uh, no, maybe my question is, how easy would it be for, I don't know, Argentina to pick up on this, right? Having in mind the scale. Yeah, I think I think that the the scale is not that important, but, mm-hmm. but the, for example, the economy is very 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 different. So, for example, for to do this, we had uh, fifty interviews with uh, influential people uh, in the government, in the private sector, in civil, in civil society, and so on. So basically, we gather. Uh, through long meetings, like 45-minute interviews with these mm-hmm. people and, and, and completely, in the sense, completely confidential. So they could yes. basically express themselves. Tell, tell me the problems. I mean, we will never say that you said that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, And then you really get the feeling of, uh, again, the perception from the reality. Yeah. Because you, some people have different perceptions of the same reality. And it's very interesting because you see this diversity of, of if, a, if a government person says something, it will be very mm-hmm. different from the private sector. And then for, for, from an activist, it will be even, even worse. So you hear the, the whole spectrum. And then <laughs> I think that would, that would be the part that, that 
that you need to change, uh, for example, for a different country. Talk to what are the right people mm -hmm. in Argentina, for example, uh, what they will say, and then and then having the, the local people that you have in your team interpreting that. Because mm -hmm. it's not only what they say, but it's also how the locals interpret something that other locals say. Because sometimes yeah. they're, they're, they're mixed signals, sometimes there are hidden signals that only locals can recognize. Or, for example, we use, mm -hmm. we all talk Spanish in those three countries or two yes. countries, where Chile, Argentina, and Costa Rica. But still, we have a different slang. And maybe yeah. some words are dialect, used with a yeah. different semantic, no, not, not dialect, not really, mm, we don't have Even more subtle, I see. Okay. No, more okay. subtle about, about, for example, this verb is used with a different semantic. So when he said that, he mm -hmm. was negative, not positive. But for me, we mean mm -hmm. positive. For, so they're more, it's more subtle. And then you right. need to, the local people to capture this thing and say, for example, no, no, that was a criticism. Well, that was not a, a something mm -hmm. good. So, yeah, but it's very interesting because you learn a lot and, and you learn... Yeah. Uh, um, but most of the things that people say, I would say they're applicable to all developing countries in Latin America because we share a very similar culture. For example, talent, basically uh, have more talent. Uh, how we, we do you get talent from other countries or, or how you develop the talent? Then yes. things of infrastructure of importance, things that are, for example, in Iceland, they don't have problems of of internet, 99% of the people is connected, but in, in some countries you have more than 20% of the people without internet. So how you can do digital transformation if people don't have the same kind of access? And we are not talking yeah. about the digital gaps of people that have internet, but they cannot use it well, like because of age, because of education, oh, because yeah, of many the other digitalization, things. correct. So as I uh, say, as a joke, the, the first digital right is not to be digital. <laughs> Correct. I think a lot of people are excluding themselves from it for sure. Um, this is so interesting, and I know for sometimes if we read any papers, it seems untangible and it seems like oh, it's so far away. This is government level, but it trickles down so quickly into policy, specifically in labor, healthcare, infrastructure, as you mentioned. And then uh, companies in general need to oblige. Uh, it is compliance, but also um, people change behaviors because they are fed new information, right? And I think this is the purpose of science for us to kind of change their mind <laughs> from time to time <laughs> and do better. Um, uh, I think we could definitely spend uh, quite a while to, to talk even more about this. I just know we are uh, both uh, sometimes in June in Spain, different conferences, but if anybody wants to get in touch with Ricardo for topics that are interesting in this area of research and implications, specifically in, in the topics we, we address today, I, I think you'll be there for... Yeah, the last, week of, the last week of June, I will be uh, co-chairing the ACM Web Science uh, Conference, which is the main conference on, on, on computer science on the web. Amazing. And uh, you can find Ricardo uh, across the globe, I feel, in a variety of uh, positions, even chairing, the speaker, of course, in the university research in the Institute of Experiential AI um, and uh, many other initiatives. I really want to thank you, Ricardo, for this insightful conversation. Uh, it's been not just um, helpful, but also fun. Uh, and I, I hope we can interact again. And if we get in touch on this podcast in a couple of years, we see even more examples and adaptations of the framework for Optia um, together with, uh, to be honest, what I also like seeing is the work of your students. I've already snooped around a little bit um, and very, very interesting with a lot of implications, specifically on bias. I think this is 
definitely an area that we'll try to stay close. But yeah, thank you for yeah, all the work there. Yeah, thank you. There are many topics that we didn't touch, like, like for example, I had two PhD students that work on, on dyslexia, how to help people with dyslexia, and I think that's also relevant to the hiring world. And, and education, and, bias, and yeah. And okay. bias, of course, is uh, like, uh, we can talk hours about that. <laughs> we'll do another one. I will see the request, but I, I'm, I'm sure we have some some standing uh, uh, topics there. Um, but really, really appreciate your time today, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you a lot. Thank you so much for staying with us for the entire episode. You are the best. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to the We Include podcast on Spotify or the podcast provider of your choice. And don't forget to share in your networks. It's highly appreciated. You can find me on LinkedIn for suggestions of initiatives and topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. They are coming out weekly. Till next time, take care.